Um, that's a great carol. Hmm? It's a great carol. The little drummer boy. Come, they told me, a newborn king to see. I farness gifts we bring to lay before the king. So to honor him when we come. Little baby, I am a poor baby too. I have no gift to bring that's fit to give the king. Shall I play for you on my drum? Mary nodded. The ox and lamb kept time. I played my drum for him. I played my best for him. And then he smiled at me, me and my drum. That tells, you know, the Bible tells us of shepherds keeping watch over their sheep by night. And magi from the east coming to Jerusalem. We know that the innkeeper told the young couple, Mary and Joseph, that there was no room in the inn. We know about King Herod's malicious edict to kill the male babies in Bethlehem. But then there's a little drummer boy, this fictitious character of the popular Christmas song that was first recorded in 1955. This drummer is, of course, not a biblical account, but his presence has become legendary in our modern Christmas imagination, and we can learn from this little boy. When we first listen to this beautiful carol, it's not immediately clear what's going on. There's so many parumpa-pa-bums, parumpa-pa-bums. You guys did it beautifully, but there are a lot of those. And the carol begins with a drummer boy narrating. The Magi have recruited him to join their journey to see Jesus. Come, they told me, a newborn king to see, our finest gifts to bring. It seems that the drummer boy agrees to go along. And then it fast forwards to the group gathered around baby Jesus. And the little drummer boy acknowledging his poverty. He has no gift to bring that's really fit for a king. He looks around and he understands that he does not have anything except this drum. And so he asks, shall I play for you? And Mary nods with approval. And then the drummer boy plays and he plays his best. And then Jesus smiles. I mean, this could have happened, right? It's, a, it's plausible. In fact, in different scenarios in scripture, this sort of thing has happened over and over again. Scripture tells us of the widow's might. It's all she had. All she had. Scripture tells us of a little boy. Probably the only one who had the common sense to bring lunch. And Jesus took his two fish and his three little loaves of bread. Worshippers of Jesus, like the Magi, compel their neighbors to consider Jesus. Christmas time, come. Come to a Christmas service. Come and see. And just like the little drummer boy, neighbors come and see. For the first time, perhaps. And if they believe, they see their poverty. Their bankruptcy is exposed. They see Jesus, and they comprehend his glory. And then they look at themselves, and they say, well, I'm broken. I'm empty and poor. 
I have nothing to give this king that even comes close to representing the honor that is due him. All I have is this drum, these few coins, this fisherman's lunch. But it's interesting, at a time when gifts are such a big deal, thank God for the internet, kind of cuts back a little bit of the footwork, huh? For those of us that don't like to shop in person. Acts tells us, Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind, he gives life and breath and everything. Well, truly, what does God need from me? That's what this verse says. What does he need from us? Things that we can do with our hands. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, is not served by human hands. He does not need anything from us. And I want that thought to sink in a little. Does God need everything from anything from me? Like the little drummer boy, there's nothing we have that God needs. For God is not served, again, by human hands. And what does that mean? It means that there's nothing I can give to God. He's like the friend at Christmas time that has everything. What do you get a person like that? You go to one of those stores that, what's that called, Brooks? Stone, brook, whatever that story is to get gadgets that nobody's ever thought of. <laughs> Yet the Magi brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were symbolic gifts for a king. But you and I, what does he want? It's so much more complicated than buying a present for a friend or loved one, isn't it? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, I want to I unwrap this verse, if you will, and forgive the pun. It's not intended. Because this is the gift that God wants from us. He doesn't want what we can buy. He wants us. Now, that's tricky, isn't it? It's tricky. And what do you think of that? Someone who wants us. Imagine a relationship, a marriage, deep friendship. And you go on a romantic dinner, candlelight, ambiance, the food is good, there's a card on the table, there's a present, everything is beautiful. You open the box, it's lovely, what's inside. It's a thoughtful present. You can tell. His secretary didn't buy me the present, but he went and picked it out on his own. You feel loved and you feel cared for. You feel so connected. You've had that experience where that moment is just so great. There's a little card. You open up the card. The card says exactly what you need to hear. And then the morning. In the morning. Breakfast. Not so fun. I'm not feeling so loved. I'm not feeling it. Or perhaps more of what's happening today with that gadget that's ever-present in our lives. Making the person who we're with feel unimportant. 
invisible. What does God want? Well, he doesn't want promises. He doesn't want gifts. He doesn't want lovely notes and warm words when we're feeling it. There's nothing wrong with these things. Now, let me get you straight. Henry, keep, keep it up. There's nothing wrong with these things. They're wonderful tokens of gratitude, of love. But they are tokens, and that's all. There's nothing wrong with what we do here when we worship. We sing. Today we're happy. Sometimes we get emotional about a hymn that we're singing. We're moved to praise God. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with tithing every week. Matter of fact, we encourage it. It's expected. There's nothing wrong with warm prayers of devotion to God. There's nothing wrong with it. But those are the things that I call it's paying the rent. Now, I want to explain that. Paying the rent. What does that mean? Well, imagine you're living in a beautiful home. It's beautiful. Landscaping, you know, three bathrooms that all work, you know, beds that are comfortable. It, it's, it's a wonderful home. Ovens that work, plumbing that's nice, nothing drips. It's, it's wonderful. And you pay the rent every month, don't you? A mortgage or a rent, either way. Does that show your gratitude? Well, I don't think so. Okay? What it shows is that you value what you have. What it shows is that you understand that if you don't pay rent or if you don't pay your mortgage, you're going to lose the house. That if you don't pay the water bill, you're not going to have running water. If you don't pay the electric bill, you're going to be living with candlelight. Eight of the Ten Commandments aren't there so you can show God how much you love him. I want you to think about that. Eight of the ten of them. I can even argue that maybe the two first ones are also part of that. They are there to keep you healthy. It's what protects you and me from ruin. Scripture tells us that even the unbeliever will live a blessed life if he obeys the commandments. Of course he's going to live a blessed life. If you don't put idols above people, above relationships, you're going to have your relationships pretty healthy. If you keep the Sabbath holy, separate, if you keep a Sabbath, you're going to be rested. Honoring your parents ensures a peaceful relationship with them. And it ensures that your children who are watching will also have good relationships with you because that's what you've exemplified. Not lusting protects you from ruin. Not murdering or stealing keeps you out of jail. Not committing adultery protects your marriage. Not speaking ill of your neighbor makes sure that your neighbor doesn't speak ill of you. None of these things do anything for God. I want you to really think about it. They don't do anything for God. It's just paying the rent. Don't delude yourself in thinking that following a commandment is giving God a gift. Henry always talks about like it's... You know, you go to the doctor and the doctor writes a prescription. You take the prescription and you take the medicine. You come back and you expect the doctor to say, thank you. You've taken that prescription for your own health. Matter of fact, you don't take the medicine. It gives the doctor a little bit more to do. <laughs> Jesus over and over denounced 
the Pharisees for this attitude. Over and over. They felt smug because they followed the commandments. Right? They saw themselves as good people. But Jesus didn't call them good. He called them self-righteous. Because no one is good. No one. You see? So even following the commandments, you don't, you're not good. So what is the deal here? What does God want from us? Well, it's really not that figure, hard to figure out. Again, think of a marriage. What's marriage all about? Gifts are nice. Those of you who are there almost married or thinking about getting married, gifts are good. Love notes, for me, are preferable to gifts that you write yourself and not plagiarize, but they're good. <laughs> but these, thing, these things a marriage does not make. Marriage is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. It's about loyalty. It's about fidelity. It's about sacrificial service. Sacrificial service. It's about long-suffering. It's about humility. It's about forgiveness. It's acceptance of flaws. It's permanence for better or for worse. It's a lifetime commitment. That's marriage. Maybe not very romantic, but that is what marriage is all about. It's a heart issue. It's not something you can buy with money. It's not a checkoff list that's so quick to do. Romans 12, verse 1 again. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The Apostle Paul tells us this. I beg you. I appeal to you. Think about this. Be wise. Because of God's mercy, because of the love that God has shown for you, do it, man. Just do it. Give yourself to him. Every part of yourself. Don't leave some parts out and tell God those are off limits. Set yourself apart for him, like a marriage. Most of you who are married wear a wedding ring. I don't. Mine doesn't fit anymore. But it's a symbol of surrendering to another. It's a symbol that says to the world, what? Hands off. It's a symbol that says, I belong to this person. Maybe not a very popular concept, I belong. Not very modern. I'm no longer available to all and sundry. I am set apart for the one that I've chosen. And do you know that's what the word holy means? Holy. Do you know that? It doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean without blemish or mistakes or zits or brokenness. Holy simply means set apart. It means only used for this specific purpose. That's all. There's no judgment of the quality. No judgment whatsoever. You are holy, not because you're undamaged goods. You are holy because you're God's. Apostle Paul urges us 
to become living, set-apart people, a holy people. What does that mean? Honestly, can you really tell me that the church is full of perfect people? I mean, sometimes I think we're more imperfect here than on the outside. This is a place for a hospital. This is a place for people who know that they're sick. They know there's something wrong with them, and that's why we're here. Paul urges us to become living, set-apart people, not because we want to garner God's good graces, not because we want God to love us. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. You know that? Now, I'm going to tread a little. But there's a lot you can do to make your parent love you more. Kids, I'm a parent, and it's true. Yes, yes. I will die for you, yes, I love you, yes, it's my job to my dying day, yes, yes, yes. That's my definition. But I'm much quicker to get up and make you your favorite breakfast if you're grateful for it. I'm much quicker to make it for you if you like me. So don't diss me here and then the next moment say, can you massage my feet? It doesn't work. For a parent, that doesn't work. That doesn't float my boat. But God? (laughs) God is in the business of loving those people who don't even know who he is. So we don't set ourselves apart for God so he can love us. But because, Paul says, that that is the logical, the reasonable thing to do when you understand what kind of love God has for you. If you have brains in your head, I see a very smart-looking group of people here. If you have brains between your ears and you start to understand who God is and what kind of love he loves you with, it's logical, isn't it? What kind of love does God love us? The little drummer boy saw a baby. Jesus in the manger, and he wanted to give his very best. But we have the privilege to know a creator God that was transformed into a baby in the manger. We're so much more enlightened than that little drummer boy. This baby that lies in a smelly trough, that walks on water, that makes blind men see and dead men walk again, that calms storms with his voice and allows soldiers to drive nails into his hands and feet, that conquers death and calls his friend This great I am has delivered us from the clutches of guilt and shame. He has taken our brokenness and he's made us whole. He sees our fickle, self-centered hearts and he wants us for his own. I get in trouble sometimes with my kids when I say this. But you know, we have been adopted into God's family. And unlike other people who go for adoption, some of the privileged, you know, they want, I don't know, they want kids who have great genes, they want, you know, I don't know, smart and handsome and and they pick and choose, they want the right sex. And even those who adopt from other countries, they know they're getting into some problems. But when God goes to adopt, He goes and looks for the crack babies and people who have the most problems. That's how I feel. 
That's how I feel. He creates us for good things, yet he watches us as we mess up our lives rather than respect what he has given us. We are damaged goods that no one wants. If they really knew us, no one really would want us. But he knows us and he wants us. He pays the ultimate price to get us back. And then instead of feeling cheated because he's bought damaged goods, no, no, he calls us precious. He calls us special. He calls us friend. He calls us child. We are God's inheritance. Now, I don't know if you've understood this. I know I think sometimes you think that God is our inheritance. No, no. The scripture says that you and I are God's inheritance. Now, try to think about that a little bit. Inheritance. Inheritance is what I hope that after we die, we will, you know, we'll, we'll split it up four ways and our kids will get something good. And we hope that they will do something good with that inheritance. And God knows you and me, and he says, oh, this is my inheritance. And it makes him happy. You know anybody like that? How do you say no to that? I mean, really, honestly, how do you say no to that? How do you not tell the only one that truly knows you and loves you, I'm yours? Completely. I'm sorry that I'm so damaged. I'm sorry I'm so selfish and fickle. But I am yours. He wants us. All of us. Every inch of us. And it's a great mystery to me. Why God wants me. Because I know me and I don't want me. I know me and I don't want me. And yet the Holy Lamb of God wants me just the way I am. Deformed, all used up, blemished. In my logical reaction, to give him everything I have and everything I am. There's a great hymn. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me Jesus. Take me now. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me savior holy thine. Let me feel the Holy Spirit truly now and know that thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessing fall on me. All to Jesus I surrender. Now I feel the sacred flame. Oh, the joy of full salvation. Glory, glory to his name. Just like the little drummer boy. We look at ourselves and wonder what we have to offer. We take inventory and we feel completely inadequate. Even after surrendering ourselves, we feel inadequate. If we see Jesus and understand his significance, we can't help but sense our frailty. I mean, all we have is this drum, this widow's might these two fishes and five loaves of bread, 
this broken body hanging on a cross next to the redeemer of the world. That's all we have. And then again, what in the world could ever be enough for this king? We've just got this drum, so we ask, do you want it? Do you want the stupid drum? And he says, yes. Bring your nothing. Play the drum. And so we play it for him. And we play our best for him. Declaring that we are small, that we are weak, that he doesn't need us in the least, but that with all that we are, with every little speck of nothing we have, we're giving it to him. To him. We know that this king has no lack, that he doesn't need anything, but that we, because of him, are absolutely, completely, wonderfully his. Me and my drum, all his. I'd like you to take a few minutes this morning just to think about what you are and what you have to give to Jesus. To give to this God who holds nothing back. Just spend some time doing that, please. <laughs>